It takes effort to visit the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Chris Solomon tells us what a summer kayaking trip to the Arctic showed him about our place in the world. To sit at the front of your tent with a cup of coffee and have a thousand caribou stream past you, I understand what that place means a little more now. The January 2010 earthquake in Haiti killed hundreds of thousands of people. A journalist on her first foreign assignment found that a little girl who survived six days under the rubble helped her fellow Haitians feel like it wasn't all hopeless. I felt like she was a symbol of resilience more, a different symbol of Haiti, of, of people who can make it through horror and get out the other side because she was tough. Catherine Porter tells us how a little girl named Lovely changed her life, too. That and the Arctic Refuge, before any heavy machinery is allowed in. It's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. For most of us, the fight over drilling in or preserving the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is just an abstraction. Adventure traveler Christopher Solomon decided to see it for himself. He tells us what he experienced a little later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Her first shot as a foreign correspondent took her from Toronto to Port-au-Prince to cover what some called the greatest humanitarian need of our time. Hundreds of thousands of people were buried alive when a major earthquake struck Haiti on January 12, 2010. As Catherine Porter reported on how the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere faced impossible odds, she got to know a two-year-old girl who survived six days before being rescued. This miracle child would become a symbol of hope and a focus of Catherine's work in Haiti and of her book, A Girl Named Lovely. Catherine Porter, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, now this must have been an amazing thing. You get the gig, they send you down right after the earthquake, and, and you fly from comfortable Toronto into this nightmare. Refresh our memory about the earthquake that devastated Haiti in 2010. The earthquake was quite low on the Richter scale comparatively. It was only 7.0, but in a place like Haiti where there are no building codes that are followed, that people have built up without any engineers in place, and in many cases um, into valleys on hilltops where they really shouldn't be building, it, it just meant complete devastation. Huge swaths of the city had crumbled and buried people alive. And because so much of the country was centered in Port-au-Prince, the capital, most of the hospitals are there, most of the universities, it meant that like, the mass brain trust of the country had also been buried alive. The rates of death were enormous, and the earthquake only lasted 35 seconds, but hmm. the toll it played on that country was just dramatic. When I arrived, it, just to see, like it, it looked like waterfalls all on e every side of the road in terms of the rubble and bodies uh, lying in body bags on the side of the road. People were walking around with toothpaste under their nose because the stench of death was so ripe. Uh, it was like a you know a built-in little air freshener above their <laughs> above their lips, uh, so oh, that they could my. not smell it. You talked about the main hotel collapsed like an accordion. Yeah, there was this, just this huge hotel where, in fact, a lot of Canadians had just gotten out of their minivans from the airport and settled into this hotel called the Hotel Montana. It was kind of the place where when people from the UN or any kind of development group or a big company looking to invest, that's where you would go and meet. It had this right. beautiful view and pool looking over over the whole city and then down to the ocean. And it just completely collapsed. More than 100 people were killed there. And the thing about this type of destruction is that it makes 
you sort of reflect on how these split second decisions of mm. I talked to someone who stepped into a store to buy something and she lost her arm and her leg. Now, if she had decided to yeah. continue walking and walk to another store five minutes down the road, she might not have had that tragedy happen to her. You wrote also about the, the homeless kids that were, I mean, the, the country had lots of homeless kids anyways, but suddenly they've got no place to go. What, what was your impression when you first were exploring the cities about all these kids that were just unattached? Well, it was so overwhelming, the damage. There were these giant signs all over made out of bedsheets saying, SOS, we need help. And there were lots of people who uh, were separated from their families. Like I said, someone would have stepped outside, the house went down, they don't know if everyone in their family had died. Of course, you worry mostly about the kids. And you know, soon after the earthquake, there were a bunch of missionaries who were thinking they were saving some orphan kids and trying to take them across the border. And in fact, most of those kids had family members. And the thing about orphanages in Haiti is they're really like poor boarding schools. So many of the people in there, their parents cannot afford to feed them, so they mm. send them to this orphanage. And there's never really a plan for them to be adopted. So even before the earthquake, like the level of poverty and malnutrition and illiteracy in kids was just heartbreaking. Then mm. you add an earthquake on top of it and you go to all these makeshift clinics in the city where people are just arriving from outside. They're coming from the Dominican Republic with duffel bags of medications looking to help. And they set up these little clinics here and there on the side of the road. And so sometimes kids were delivered to them with no idea of who, you know, who their parents were, what neighborhood they were from. If the people delivering them were Haitian, they could give the information. But if the person who was taking the notes or even had paper to take notes was not Haitian and did not speak Creole, then there'd be no paper trail on these people. Um, so there was a real fear at the beginning that some of these kids would be preyed upon, and there was mm. already a system that kids in Haiti are stolen, kidnapped, taken across, sold into brothels into the Dominican Republic, or sold basically into indentured labor. And so there was just huge concern at the beginning of what would happen to these children. Catherine Porter is telling us how the people of Haiti survived following the devastating earthquake of 2010. Her journalism assignment brought her into the life of a two-year-old girl whose survival in the rubble was nothing short of a miracle. Her book is called A Girl Named Lovely. Catherine, this must have just been overwhelming, and a lot of people have reported on Haiti and the poverty there, and what makes your reporting really intimate is the story of you meeting this amazing girl, the, the miracle child. Can you tell us about Lovely? the main character in your book, a girl named Lovely. So Lovely was uh, two when I met her. She had been rescued from the rubble six days after the earthquake and delivered to this little makeshift clinic that was being run by some doctors with Médecins du Monde and some people with a uh, Dominican civil defense and a whole bunch of other just random people that fly into disasters to help, some that are equipped with skills that you would be helpful after an earthquake and some that just come because they feel this need to to witness and offer hope. And so she was this little kid and um, she was two, although to me, you know, when I met her, I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old at home that I had left. And she's had the poise of my three-year-old, but she was the size of my one-year-old, really small, scrawny kid. Everyone told me that it was a miracle that she survived because really it is uh, like unheard of to last six days under the rubble without water particularly or food at, at a, such a small size. 
and they figured she was orphaned. And no one knew what happened to her parents. People were just glomming around her. The first time I met her, I, I was looking at her to see signs of the trauma she'd been through. And the doctors told me that she had malnutrition and dehydration and parasites, but there were no broken bones or lacerations or other signs that she had suffered through an earthquake, except for when she arrived, she was covered in dust, and she was despondent, crying for a number of days. So one of the the people who flew in from Montreal basically just hugged her and took care of her and held her for two days like a human rescue blanket. And I realized the role that those people play after disaster. You know, everyone, I think, around her was flocking to her because she was kind of the symbol of the country's fragility. I mean, here was this little two-year-old kid. They thought she was orphaned. She had lived through hell. And what was going to happen to her? But to me, there's something very hard about Lovely. She is a survivor. She's tough. She's got a, like an old lady's soul. You know, when she looks at you, she looks right into you, and she does not try and please her admirers. She's not like my daughter who's always playing to the crowd. She doesn't mm. really, she's kind of indifferent to whether you like her or not. And so I felt like she was a symbol of resilience more, a different symbol of Haiti, of just, you know, people who can make it through horror and get out the other side because she was tough. And I was drawn to her right away, I think because I had two little kids around her age, and I just worried what was going to happen to her because there were these stories of kids being picked up and taken across the border. There was a lot of concern from UNICEF at the time as what was going to happen to these kids. Despite the fact that everyone around her seemed well-meaning, most of them weren't with a real organization. There was no one keeping tabs on them. So I just worried about what was going to happen to her. And I started calling UNICEF to make sure they had a, a file on her to, to make sure that there was some kind of paperwork. And throughout my first trip there, I was there for 10 days, and I kept just, every time I passed by this makeshift clinic, I would stop and go in and just check on her to see, mm -hmm. you know, what was happening with her. We had some kind of connection, although I don't think she felt it at the time, and I didn't realize that it was going to last a lifetime. But there was an instant concern I had. And I think for me, as a journalist who was reporting on so many personal tragedies, I just felt a, a human kindred concern for her from the beginning to make sure that she was going to be okay. And you've had the chance to go back to Haiti a number of times. How is Lovely yeah. now? What's the story of Lovely? So, you know, I did go back three months later and I found her. She was not orphaned. She has a, a large family and all of them had incredibly survived the earthquake, but yet they were living in, in basically a shack. They come from a very poor neighborhood of Port-au-Prince. Haiti is still in a disaster zone. It's still in a crisis. It seems to go from one crisis to the next. So her family is still desperately poor. Uh, for the last number of years, me and a number of um, readers of my uh, former newspaper, the Toronto Star, have continued to fund her to go to school, as well as all the other little kids in her extended family. So we've got about 10 of them going to school now. And you've had um, the joy of going back and visiting and seeing how, how your gift is making a difference? Yeah. I mean, not just how it's making a difference, just to be part of their family. I mean, at this point, I brought my daughter down at one point uh, so she could share some time with Lovely so that she could sort of see where her mother was going half of her life. Huh. And then we formed a personal relationship. So now, you know, her whole family knows my daughter. They they got to see me as a mom as opposed to just a journalist. Uh -huh. I now, you know, when I go, just spend time hanging out with them, eating, playing, dancing. 
I consider them family now. There's a new sort of sensibility when you think about um, developmental aid and so on. Did you notice any stunting in Haiti and, and was Lovely uh, dealing with a stunting problem? Lovely does not have a stunting problem, which is quite miraculous in itself because she was so malnourished. And she did have just terrible teeth um, that were had black spots. We spent a lot of time at the dentist. She had uh, two parents in her lives who both work on the streets doing kind of menial labor, and they managed to feed her at least once a day or, or mm. twice a day. So she's as bright-eyed as, as your daughters then from a childhood nutrition well, point of view? I wouldn't say that. No. I mean, like, okay. these kids are skinny. When I take my daughter's clothes down, mm-hmm. my daughter's a year older than her, mm. I take her clothes down, they're four or five sizes too big. I mean, like, mm. they're like she's years behind. She hasn't been well-fed. She's a, she's a skinny little kid, but she's not stunted. And you can see it in Haiti. I mean, there are kids you see who have such severe malnutrition, their hair goes orange, right. and they have these pot bellies and stick arms, and you can really spot them. So she, while she was poor... She wasn't that destitute or poor. Catherine Porter takes your calls in a minute at 877-333-7425 as we explored life in Haiti ever since the earthquake devastation of January 12, 2010. It's Travel with Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Catherine Porter. Her book is A Girl Named Lovely, One Child's Miraculous Survival and My Journey to the Heart of Haiti. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Christy's on the phone from Martinsville in Saskatchewan. Christy, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I'm thrilled to talk to both of you today. And well done pronouncing Saskatchewan. Oh, I do my best. (laughs) uh... (laughs) Uh, Haiti is very close to our hearts, and so I've been listening with great... Um, interest in Lovely's story. Um, we currently sponsor a little girl from Haiti, and we, we have sponsored children in Haiti for a couple of decades. We have traveled a couple of times with a child sponsorship organization to African countries, and as someone who's done that, I see such a disparity between what's being portrayed in the news and the pockets of good that we saw in that in those developing African countries. I know that Haiti is in crisis right now, but Can you tell me, Catherine, is there progress and is there good going on in Haiti that the news cameras don't see? Oh, 100%. And I profile some of this in my book. It's definitely better than after the earthquake. There's no rubble on the streets, for instance. But there are some great organizations that are doing really good work in Haiti. One is Partners in Health, which is run by a remarkable doctor named Dr. Paul Farmer, who uh, works at a hospital in Massachusetts. And he not only runs healthcare hospitals for free, basically for free, offering really advanced healthcare, but also has schools attached to these um, hospitals, uh, farming programs. So all the food that feeds the hospitals come from, you know, support local farmers. And almost all of the staff, most of the board, almost everyone is is Haitian, which I really think is like the key. You, like when you're looking at a program to support, you got to make sure that it's that there's real grassroots local support ownership. in 
Yeah, local ownership exactly. and local, you know, not just ownership, but like that are steering the whole program. Um, and so there's many, many of those programs. The, the thing that upsets me about Haiti is that there was just such a hope that this earthquake would be this terrible springboard into a new way of doing things. I don't, I don't know if you remember, but Bill Clinton kept talking about Build Back Better mm-hmm. and this idea that, you know, there would be this sort of new Haiti, like a new Rwanda after the genocide with things that, that were developing world world norms, free education for kids, better health care that was free for particularly for pregnant women and children, you know, working airports, more jobs, all these type of things that was systemically changed. And that has not happened. But that much said, there are many great organizations and many wonderful people doing really great things on the ground. A lot of it is having good governance as well, isn't it? And taking care of the environment. I mean, my understanding is you can fly over that island. Half of it's Dominican Republic and half of it is Haiti. And you can just see the border because one side is deforested. And then when you get more violent weather with the global climate change and so on, it just washes away the topsoil. People say the number, one, the number one export for Haiti, they say, is topsoil, which is just devastating <laughs> for the people. And yeah, uh, that's a real, real problem. And all the woods that's there goes to charcoal, which is the number one way of cooking, right? So, so, so they have a really... Be, there needs to be energy and, and smartness on the part of government policies where people can have smart stoves, for instance, where you don't need to yeah. cut down as many trees to Or to just cook. running electricity. These were all sort of the plans after the earthquake of having regular electricity, for instance, mm-hmm. which even if you have money in, in Haiti, mm-hmm. you're not going to get electricity. Mm-hmm. Almost everyone who has money and wealthy has a huge generator and they're, they're running that with, with gas, which is also environmentally terrible. It's these large systemic issues that have bedeviled the country since it had an incredible revolution and slaves overthrew Napoleon. And it's been sort of suffering a wrath since then. And, you know, but to get back to Christie's point, I was just in Guatemala and Ethiopia learning about these things. And there is a lot to be positive about and hopeful for because we have a new way of developing which helps people become productive and part of the global economy rather than traditional charity, which just keeps people, you know, well-meaning, but it keeps people impoverished. So I think there's exciting new reasons to be hopeful, but some countries are doing better than others. And I was coming back from Guatemala, Ethiopia, thinking about the three C's, corruption, conflict, and climate change. These are big players in the game as we try to help countries like Haiti become self-sufficient. Now, Haiti doesn't traditionally have conflict, but there has been the politics of aid there. You know, Mm -hmm. like so much of the economy comes from aid, like two thirds of the budget Mm -hmm. of the the GDP of the country is from aid between the corruption of local government. But also, you know, there's no local person driving the ship. So if you have a Canadian aid that's going in and, you know, Canada's really into maternal health. So they'll say, okay, we want to fund programs at at hospitals for pregnant women because that's what, you know, our aid program's about. That might work. But it has to be part of a, a larger program for development. And the mm-hmm. problem in Haiti has so long been that you have a weak government and lots of opinionated people giving money who want mm-hmm. to give money for what they want to do, but it doesn't fit into an overall plan. And Catherine, my understanding is there's vast fields of that could be growing rice in Haiti, but it's unplanted because so much food is dumped on them by the United States where local farmers are demoralized. Why should they try to compete with free food coming in from America when that aid in a more smart way would encourage local farmers to be productive and connect with the market. Did you notice anything like that? 100%. 
Yeah, I mean, we saw rice on the right after the earthquake, uh, bags of American rice being sold in the market that were sent for aid, for sure. And there's the same story about there was a Haitian pig that was killed en masse because of an American policy of work concern about swine flu at the time. Mm-hmm. So now they import all these pigs from the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, like aid is political too, right? Yeah, and so, so and it's yeah, not to put down I, I wonder, aid. after the earthquake, it would be really brilliant rather than bringing in food indefinitely to, you know, do what Paul farmer does already on the ground for his hospitals and buy from the local markets. So you are employing locals. You're keeping the money in the country. And, you know, a lot of A, like even like some of the the housing that was built, there's very little housing was built after the earthquake, but a lot of it was manufactured in Canada and sent down. That creates Canadian jobs. It does not Mm -hmm. create Haitian jobs. And I, I think the new sensibility is to make aid engender development in the receiving country. And that is so exciting, and it's not to put down aid. It's just there's got to be smart aid that empowers locals to be developed. Christy, thanks so much for your part in that as sponsoring a child in Haiti, and uh, that must be very gratifying for you. Well, it's it's gratifying to hear that there's good things going on because exactly like you said, I don't want to be part of a handout. I want to be part of a hand up. I want to be mm-hmm. part of something sustainable and mm-hmm. something that empowers people and doesn't keep them poor. So thank you so much for this conversation. I'm looking really forward to your program on on the causes of poverty, because I think here in North America, we have a very skewed idea of what causes poverty, and it's very different there. Yeah, stay tuned. It's going to be exciting to be able to learn about this and share it. Thanks for your call, Christy. Thanks, Rick. Take care. Yep. Catherine Porter, the Canada Bureau Chief for The New York Times, is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She joins us from the CBC Studios in Toronto. Catherine writes about her experiences with the people of Haiti after the island's devastating 2010 earthquake in her book, A Girl Named Lovely, One Child's Miraculous Survival and My Journey to the Heart of Haiti. Catherine's website is porterwrites.ca. Anne's on the line from Lakemont in Georgia. Hi, Anne. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. My husband and I did several mission trips to Haiti. Um, He's done three or four more than I've done, but I've been there twice, once before the earthquake, and once after the earthquake. And I really can identify uh, with a lot of what your your folks have said already. You know, it's just, it seems like a, a bottomless pit because there's so much need there. We sponsor children uh, because we believe education is the key uh, for them to come out. But corruption is still there. I've never seen people with so little, though, to be so happy. Hmm. I find that amazing. That's, Catherine, that's an interesting point. What was your experience? Because that is fascinating to think that people in such tough an environment really have a joyful spirit. Your point is great, and I completely agree with you in terms of education. That's where I, I put all of my money that I raised is, is towards schooling, because you got to hope that those kids will grow up and build the country themselves. And yeah, I mean, Lovely and her family are really poor. They were super poor when I met them. Like I said, they were living in a shed. Now they're living in a bigger shed. They're physically not much better off. They have no running water. Electricity comes like now and then, very rarely. Um, No toilet. And yet the last time I was with them, they make a big feast. And we all dance and laugh and just enjoy life. I mean, they really really just enjoy what they have. I even was talking to Lovely's mom the last time I came. And I I was sort of 
pointing out their house saying, God, you know, with all this help, like, are, are you really better off? How are, and she said, she sort of turned to me and she said, Catherine, we're happy. And the city wasn't built in seven years. So how do you think we're going to rebuild that? Mm-hmm. You know, they say, pat, pat, we're doing it slowly by slowly. We're on our way. And I guess it is just a reminder. I mean, happiness, like we're, we're such a consumerist society in mm-hmm. North America and there people are deeply spiritual and you know, people are happy with what little they have. They're happy with their relationships, with their mm-hmm. friendships. You know, that's interesting be- because with, with my project, I've been learning that I've been coming to the realization we don't need to overcome poverty. We need to focus on extreme poverty because everybody doesn't need to be having material well-being. They need just to have lives where they can be fulfilled and, and live without the fear of, can I get a meal next week or can my kids go to school or can I get health care? And if we can just tackle the extreme poverty on this planet in countries like Haiti, I think we can get there. But a lot of times we look at it from an ethnocentric point of view uh, as far as they've got to have the material wealth we've got. No, but they need to be on the grid to have running water, to have you know health care, to have some stability, to, to empower women to be educated so that they can raise their kids smartly so they won't be just baby machines for men that, that just take advantage of them. I mean, right. you talked quite... <laughs> emotionally about uh, Lovely's cousin who who became pregnant. Can you just talk about the, the plight of girls that, that really have no education, who are in a world where the men are taking advantage of them, and then what does that mean to their future? In Haiti, the vast majority of households are women-run, like single mother-run. And when you talk about poverty in places like Haiti, what you're really talking about is poor women. The women um, are the ones who, on the economic scale, make the least amount of money, and most of them um, are self-employed as little, they call them petits marchands, they're little merchants that sell, like have a basket of things to sell on the side of the road. They're they're walking vending machines, basically, and they might make $2 a day U.S. So, you know, we're really talking about women, and, and often the family that doesn't have money to send their kids to school will choose to send the boys to school and not mm-hmm. the girls. And that's, you know, across uh, many developing countries, not just um, not just Haiti. So there's real problems of men not being in the picture and birth control. Now, in a place like Haiti, they have actually succeeded in reducing the birth rates by providing free birth control. But, you know, you got to get the condoms or go and get the shot, make sure you take the pill. If you even think about your house, if you're living in a shed with eight other people, your stuff is not your stuff. It's all mixed up, mixed in, people coming in and out. You don't really have necessarily the security to hold on to almost anything. So you're not in, in the same kind of control of your life as, as we are in the West. Lovely has, has a little cousin named Sophony. She was around eight when I met her. I, I sent her to school to the point that she had the most education of anyone in her family. She had made it as farther all the way to high school, which was unheard of in her family. And she got pregnant. And she got pregnant, I think, because A, she's, she's a teenage girl. You know, um, there's nothing to do where she lives. There's no TV. There's no um, sort of after-school sports or games. And she was fooling around. Um, and it was quite disappointing to me because it, you know, her family had not talked to her about birth control beforehand. They're quite religious. They didn't believe in sex before, you know, um, her, she got much older. Um, and so they were furious. But also it just means that she's not going to school anymore. She's taking care of her baby. The guy is not in the picture. And um, despite the fact that she got that far in schooling, you know, f- at least for the short term, her prospects of increased, like, 
livelihood. You know, like if she had finished high school, her chances of getting employment in the formal economy is so much greater. Mm -hmm. And that's gone now, Um, which to me is really upsetting. Now, I'm still hoping that we can help her by paying for babysitting so she can go back to school. And that will make her lucky if that happens. But for most girls her age, you know, where it's really common to get pregnant when you're a teenager, it basically means that no matter, you know, how far you've gone in schooling, everything kind of stops. Well, the the hope is that women become better educated, and, and that's a whole societal challenge. And then they will be able to be more in their control instead of taken advantage of by irresponsible dads that just don't hang around. Thanks for your call, Anne, and thank you for what you're doing in Haiti with your husband. It sounds I hope that's gratifying for you. Uh, it is, but it's like as soon as we're gone, things go kind of right back to where they were before. But... We do pray that they get better. And thank you for the work that you're doing. And I want to make one quick comment. You said something either on a show or on a book. Everybody's dream is not the American dream. I'm fully behind making their dreams work for them. That's great. Not forcing ours on them. That's the, that's, that's sort totally of fundamental. Agree. Thanks, Anne. Best wishes. All right. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Catherine Porter, and her book is A Girl Named Lovely talking about surviving in the heart of Haiti after, even 10 years after that devastating earthquake. You know, Catherine, it's easy to get discouraged, but we can't get discouraged. Can you leave us with some idea of hope that will inspire us to care about what's outside of our rich, rich country's borders? You know, we're Canada and America are together about 5% of the world's population, and there's 95% out there, and it's a global age. We're all in this together. We can't just... Um, you know, turn our back on that, but we don't want to get demoralized like people like Anne who work really hard and think that it just carries on. Is there any yeah. hope? What's your take? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree exactly with what you say. Like, the my experience in Haiti has just cemented the fact that we're all in this together. Like, it's we're one humanity. And, and I think I, at first I had real hopes for Lovely that she would sort of trampoline, like the hopes that were for Haiti in general, that it would trampoline from from extreme poverty up far up the um, developmental ladder quickly. That hasn't happened yet. I mean, I talked to her yesterday on the phone. She spoke to me in fluent French, which I have to tell you, like, you know, no poor Haitians speak. It, it's a school, it's a language of, of education. Hmm. She's um, in grade seven. Um, she's enjoying school and passing. As she asked me at the end when she was going to see me next and whether I could bring my daughter down to visit mm-hmm. her, I see that th- there hasn't been the progress we had all hoped for the country or even for her family necessarily. But I realized, like our last caller, Anne, said, you know, my expectations were wrong and she is happy and she is healthy and she is thriving and that's what we should really just aim for. Just, you know... Mm-hmm. Uh, to have connections, real connections we don't with need real to people. Rom- and- we don't need to romanticize poverty, but we also don't need to expect people to have the same material needs to be happy or satisfied as we have in Canada and America. And to me, yeah, that's, I think what like what Anne said, thing. like like what Anne said is like you know my hope for her is that she will fulfill, she will have a fulfilling life mm-hmm. and a life that she thinks is meaningful and that she finds joy in. I mean that's that's all. We all want, right? Um, I mean, obviously, I want her to be healthy and happy and and safe, too. Um, But those are the minimum standards. And I think as long as she finds fulfilling life um, in in whatever way that is, then I have achieved my goal. And that's, you know, your relationship with Lovely, I think, could be a microcosm of 
the uh, United States and Canada's relationship to Haiti. I, I, th- I think that's a, f- a very nice way to get our brains around the, the humanity of this. Catherine Porter, thank you for your reporting, and uh, best wishes with your ongoing relationship with Haiti and with Lovely. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. Is it wasteland or is it pristine? Christopher Solomon suggests that nine days in the middle of some of the most remote wilderness in America might change the way you look at the world. He joined a small river rafting expedition into Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to see it for himself. That's the land that's been debated for decades over starting or preventing oil exploration and drilling and how it'll affect the wildlife and the native villagers who depend on it. Chris tells us what the journey showed him next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Austin from San Sebastian, coming from the Basque Country to the world with Rick Steves. Who stands to gain the most and who loses the most if oil drilling is allowed inside the borders of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in the northeast corner of Alaska? Last June, travel writer Christopher Solomon spent nine days on a guided river expedition through Anwar, the Arctic Refuge. It started in the interior of Alaska and ended up on the shores way in the north in the Arctic Ocean. He writes in a feature article that ran in the New York Times that he wanted to see the refuge before the proposed drilling plans of the Trump administration would get underway. In fact, the article's called Exploring a Timeless Wilderness Before the Drilling Begins. Chris joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to report on what he learned. Chris, thanks for coming back. Oh, great to be here, Rick. Thanks for having me. So... You describe this place, which is the size of South Carolina with no roads, as something nearly forgotten, like some package that's freezer burned in the back of the national icebox. I just love that. Why did you spend nine days exploring something so remote? Well, I am a freelance writer who is both a travel writer at times and who switches hats and who's also an environmental writer. And I frequently have written about places that are well off the beaten track, both as a travel writer, but sometimes as an environmental writer. And the Arctic Refuge is a rather dramatic example of this. It's someplace that few people end up getting to, but is in the headlines and has been in the headlines for decades. And frankly, I, Rick, I get tired and of, of writing about these places that, that are just a, you know, a scrolling headline you know, across the TV screen and are so abstract that they really don't mean anything to me or to other people. I wanted to see this place for myself. I wanted to understand more what was at stake. That's so interesting because I'll go to a a country to humanize it, to get to know the people that live there. But you can kind of, in an environmental sense, humanize a place, apart from humans, I mean, just the reality of the place, the nature of, of the place. As a travel writer and a person who cares about the environment, you can go there and bring home uh, maybe a better appreciation that we can learn from your experience. How would you describe the land that, that you explored? What, what is this Arctic refuge? Well, it's, I mean, just to give you a few broad outlines, I mean, the Arctic refuge itself is the size of South Carolina. And the place I was particularly interested in is the coastal plain, which is to say the area between the Brooks Range 
and the Beaufort Sea, which is people would think of more as sort of the Arctic Ocean, the, the water at the top of the world. And that place is about the size of Delaware. And that's the area that different sides have warred over for year, decades, about whether or not it should be drilled for oil. That's what the headlines have been about in the last two years. Congress passed a law to open it up to potential drilling. So and most of this area is a, a mountainous, uninhabitable uh, not very welcoming interior, but there's this flat coastal area then, huh? Yeah, yeah. And so just to be more specific, you have the the very rugged Brooks Range, which is up to like 9,000 feet, and then it drops down and gently leans toward saltwater, like the bays of an old pool table. And it's, it is marshy and tussocky, you know, just kind of hummocked and very flat. I mean, to the point the eye kind of waters as it tries to take in the immensity of the flatness. In your New York Times article, you wrote, what lives here grows low. Well, because, I mean, between the intensity of the seasons and the coldness and the winds, it's completely treeless, I guess I should say. So you got lichen, you got moss, you got puppies. Yeah, and sedges, and in a a very short season of intense flowers. I'd never been to a landscape like it, and I've had the good fortune to travel all over the place, but north of the mountains, north of the Arctic Circle... It is a almost a surreal landscape, uh, flat, treeless, often marshy. Um, some people would say, well, it's a wasteland, but it no, it has a beauty that's particular, I would say. So you wrote that it has a brief, frenetic Arctic summer, an explosion of wildlife. Is that when you were there? Yes. The summer is both, you know, one of the more hospitable times to go if you time it around the, um, so you're not there when all the mosquitoes are hatching. But then the caribou are on the move. There are the predators that are following the caribou, you know, whether it's wolverine or or grizzly bears. 200 and some odd different species of birds are known to uh, live and and mate in the coastal plain of the refuge. Uh, Millions and millions of birds, shorebirds, geese, owls. The place comes alive for for a few months and then kind of hunkers down in the wintertime when you're more likely to maybe see a few polar bears. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher Solomon. We're talking about his adventure through Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. This is what's called ANWR. This is what's threatened by drilling from the uh, oil industry. And the question that, that we need to decide as a nation is, do we want the money or do we want to save the environment? And I want to talk more about the experience, but it is an issue, isn't it? Now, what is the issue? Who wants what and why? So at heart, there has been a long battle over uh, whether we can drill it responsibly and get that oil out from under this place or whether this place is too wild and too precious to drill. So from a pragmatic point of view, let's say, sure, I like trees. Sure, I care about the environment. There's just money to be made, and this is huge. I mean, what's a few little roads and a drilling stand going to do to mess up the environment? Can't we have it, our cake and eat it too? Well, and I think that has been the um, standpoint of, I would say, many Alaskans, some Alaskans, and most, pretty much all of the Alaskan political delegation for decades. They literally have said, this is a wasteland. This place is not valuable. And the oil industry says it can be done responsibly. Does the oil industry really care, or are they just trying to talk them, themselves into it. I, I guess I, I can't say whether they actually care or not. I think they believe it can be done responsibly. You know, <laughs> the estimates really vary on how much oil is there. The average amount, according to an old estimate, is there's a year's worth of oil consumption for the United States under that coastal plain. In uh, other you know, words, it might be an oil pipe dream. Well, yeah. I mean, 
it could be you could a violate real... this you could violate this virgin uh, corner of of our hemisphere and just get a disappointing haul it could be a real bust and and i think the larger question that a lot of people are asking wh- whether it's democrats or environmentalists is like what are we willing to gamble at a time when the question really is should we be keeping stuff in the ground to stem the very worst of global climate change and do we really want to be drilling a place like this when we're trying to wean ourselves from fossil fuels anyways. Yeah, and the, and the irony is uh, Alaska is facing some of the most dramatic effects already of climate change. Um, villages are being moved because they're being flooded. Um, permafrost is melting. We're seeing all sorts of uh, new kind of changes, ticks moving north, all sorts of change in, uh, in Alaska. But Alaska, I mean, to put it bluntly, is heroin addicted to oil. <laughs> I was just in Houston and uh, they were talking about how nobody goes outside anymore in the summer. Everything is, there's these vast commercial zones underground, you know. And uh, I said, why is there not more concern about climate change? You guys are taking the brunt of it. I'm not here in Seattle. And they said, well, the, the fossil fuel industry pays for our culture. Everything that we do is connected to the money that we get from the fossil fuel industry. And you just mentioned the same thing about Alaska. It's an interesting quandary, isn't it? This addiction to that, frankly, that revenue. Yeah, I mean, Alaska is particularly fascinating that way. And, you know, some of the native groups up there, including the one village on the north side of the Brooks Range in the refuge called Kaktovik, would stand to benefit from uh, financially from more energy development there. So the town, the village is kind of split. And even as they could potentially um, be harmed by, by energy development. So if you think about who would benefit Local indigenous people would, would have some benefit. So, some, some of them would. Uh, some of them would be harmed. How would they be harmed? Well, there's a, there's a village on the south side, uh, the Gwynchin peoples, and they are adamantly against this. They're on the south side of the Brooks Range because they, they have relied on the caribou that travel through the area for thousands of years. Oh, and a small industrial initiative could uh, redirect the migration routes? Yeah, and so there, there are a lot of worries by caribou scientists and others that energy development will, in the Arctic Refuge, will affect uh, caribou. I mean, this is their buffet line that walks past the village every year and has for thousands of years. And so the Gwich'in people stand to gain nothing from energy development and only stand to lose. And so they are adamantly against it. Whereas this other village and the, these other people, it's much more divisive. And would you say the Alaskan uh, delegation to Congress just sees it as good for the economy, therefore they're in favor of drilling? Yeah, they're all three of the members of the delegation are pro are pro drilling, and it's positive. and it's an economic issue. It's an economic issue, and they see it as being able to raise the boats of indigenous peoples. Generally well, speaking, you can make, as well, you could make a case for that. Adventure travel writer Christopher Solomon's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves as he takes us on his camping trip to experience the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge before any oil drilling begins. Chris won the Travel Journalist of the Year Award in 2018 from the Society of American Travel Writers. Chris's website is chrissolomon.net. We also have an extra from today's interview about Arctic permafrost and the moment Chris knew for sure that his trip was worth all the effort. You'll find it with today's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Chris, it's confusing to me just what is the proper term to call this wildlife refuge. Can you just tell me the politics of, of the name game here? It, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that, uh, Rick, because I think this place has been so contentious that even the name is something people can't even agree upon. So just to give you an example, 
the, the proper name of the place is the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And the energy industry generally referred to it as ANWAR, which is an acronym right. for, for that title. Right. Um, it is now referred to exclusively, especially by the environmental community, as the Arctic Refuge or the Refuge. That is to underscore its value as the premier wildlife refuge, is the largest refuge in the United States, and not to diminish, I think, by uh, by reducing it to an acronym, not to diminish its importance. There's politics even in what you call it. Okay. So, Chris, tell us about the actual trip. Sure. So, I, th- I think um, from Fairbanks back to Fairbanks, it's about a 10-day trip, about nine days out in the bush, as they say. And it required um, a couple different um, bush plane flights to get out there. So, we flew from Fairbanks to Arctic Village, which is a Gwich'in village. So, I was able to talk to some locals there on the south side of the refuge. Then we flew across the Brooks Range onto the north side of the Brooks Range. And then we floated for the next uh, several days down the Hula Hula River, which is one of many rivers that drain the north side of the Brooks Range toward the Arctic Ocean. How many uh, miles was the float? I believe it was 65 uh, river miles. 65 miles. So just again to remind people, this is a vast natural refuge the size of South Carolina with no roads. And there's a town in the on the south end, I guess, and then you flew over that to the flat area north of the mountain range, and then you you rafted for 65 miles. Tell us about the boats, the company, the guides, the, the people you were traveling with. Yeah, so I went with Arctic Wild, which is just a few companies that specializes in travel in the high Arctic, a uh, very reputable uh, company. We took like uh, around 14-foot large rubber inflatable rafts, and there were uh, 10 of us in all, a few guides, and, and the rest kind of uh, adventurous people. And uh, kind of the, the rhythm of the days is we would paddle. We would get up, and if it was a moving day, we would break camp and paddle for, for maybe several hours and get to a camp and set up camp. And then we might uh, lay over for a day, and we would uh, we'd maybe have, have dinner. And then one of the most amazing parts about being up there is that it's it's light 24 hours a day. And so that you could just throw away your watch. Time has no meaning up there in, in, in late June. And so we would maybe paddle when we wanted to. We would eat when we were hungry. We went on hikes at 11 o'clock at night until 2 in the morning. And then we would maybe have a snack. And we would get up at 11 in the morning again and then maybe go for another hike. And so it was really amazing to get on some more, get in touch with a more natural pulse of life for, for about a week. Didn't you in your article call that Arctic time or, or something yes, like this? Yes, the, yeah. the guides told us at the beginning that we were going to do this, and every once in a while, <laughs> you know, uh, someone would say, what time is it? And the, and the guide would just say, you know, the time is, is right now. It's right now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with adventure travel writer Christopher Solomon. We have links to Chris's website and recent articles by Chris with today's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. So your guides, how did they contribute? Did they actually teach you about the flora and the fauna? Did they teach you about the uh, the issues? Or what, what was their agenda as teachers? Or were they just helping you make the trip safely? Yeah, the guides, really amazing young guys, enthusiastic uh, guys, incredibly well-informed about the flora and fauna and very good paddling instructors, you know, a lot of experience around bears and other wildlife. They knew a fair bit about uh, the current events, but, you know, they know they have to deal with a lot of different kinds of people, so they didn't weigh in on the politics of, you know, some of the stuff we've talked about, but extremely well-versed in a lot of the natural history of the, of the area. So they could answer almost any question, and they got a lot of 
odd questions from us city, you know, uh, city folks. I bet. So was it comfortable? Was it safe? Uh, did you eat well? Yeah. You know, how I would describe this kind of trip for an experienced outdoors person who is up for a, a good time in the outdoors, but who is, uh, I guess I would say, is game for anything. Because you can have 75 degrees in the Arctic in June, or you can have 25 degrees in snowing. And so you have to go with that kind of um, high-spiritedness in mind. You, you traveled a long way, spent a lot of money, spent a lot of time. Tell me what you learned. What did you take away from it? Was it worth the trouble? Oh, it definitely was worth the trouble. I mean, I, I just wanted a sense of the feeling and and value of a place like this that I could take away. So I understood it when I when I saw that acronym again. And um, the Arctic Refuge. Yeah, and I knew I knew what it meant in some visceral way. And to sit at the front of your tent with a cup of coffee and have a thousand caribou stream past you. I understand what that place means a little more now, a lot more now after 10 days there. I think I've spent more time there than some of those Alaskan politicians now. Not that it's that much time I've spent there, but I think I understand it a little better. You wrote, this, someone whispered, is sacred. I think they said that pretty well. That's quite a remarkable, impactful moment when somebody just arrives, beaches the, the raft, steps out, it's silent. You're surrounded by nature. It's like nature fortissimo. This is sacred. So, Chris, I'm spending my life in the lower 48. Uh, you've experienced a reality in the far reaches of Alaska. Explain to me just a little bit about the majesty of the nature you saw up there and, and how that might even have anything to do with me. I think that's a good question because I think, again, these places can seem so abstract, Rick. You might see a tundra swan up there in the summer, and it's up there for a few weeks to find its mate and 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 lay eggs and have chicks and then get the heck out of there. And that tundra swan is going to go back to the Chesapeake Bay, and people will see it and, and wonder at it this winter. Or maybe a mallard is going to do the same thing and head back and maybe be a hunter's quarry in Arkansas. Um, and there's thousands of those stories. I mean, we'll see, I think it was Buff breasted sandpipers that will go to Uruguay. Or there's the bar-tailed godwit, which is another little bird. I learned about all these birds. It it will fly 7,000 miles, the longest overseas migration in the world. It will go to the Yukon Delta and then fly all the way to New Zealand without stopping. I mean, these just these, I just get kind of moved about these stories. And they all, but they all come up to the high Arctic, which has sort of been called you know, sort of uh, this whole area has sort of been called Heathrow at the edge of the world for birds. So it's like a springboard for all that uh, vitality beyond what we can probably normally appreciate. Yeah, and all these animals that we take for granted when we see them outside our windows, I mean, they, they rely on these places way, way out of our view. Christopher Solomon, thanks so much for your adventure and for sharing it. The article's in the New York Times. It's called Exploring a Timeless Wilderness Before the Drilling Begins. Thanks so much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wolner, and Kazmura Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Amara Kipnikone. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. 
Rick produces updated walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find the latest ones in Rick's Audio Europe travel app. Look for it at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look for you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.